This morning at the close of the service, we're going to observe communion together, the Lord's Supper. So in preparation to do that, I want you to join me in John chapter 15. We're going to look at the first eight verses of John 15. You'll notice the chapter begins with Jesus declaring himself to be the true vine, his father, the vine dresser. And then he talks about the branches that are in him. And then there's a call to abide in him. I was thinking about this this week as contemplating what to preach before we observe communion. I want to say this and then build this sermon off of it. The Lord's Supper, in a sense, is a declaration, an affirmation that we are abiding in Christ through faith. And that we are continuing to look to him by faith. That's what we're saying when we come to communion. We are again declaring our faith in the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus as being sufficient for our salvation. And that we are standing in need of nothing else. And we are proclaiming his death until he comes. All of these things are bound up in our observance of communion. So if you have found your place in John 15, I want you to read with me the first eight verses where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Would you pray with me? Father, we we come and... And ask that you open this to our understanding, Lord, our desire, every Christian in the room. Because the Spirit of God is indwelling our hearts, we desire to abide in Christ, to remain, to continue with him. Lord, make that a reality in our own heart, in our own life. That we would have no other recourse. That we would have no other place to turn. We ask your blessing upon this time, and we do so in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things I want to remind you of as we look at these verses, in John's Gospel, the ordering of these verses comes just before Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. So Jesus speaks these words just literally hours before he would endure everything for the sake of his people. He's dealing with, in the first eight verses, the true and the false. 
Notice he says, I am the true vine. The implication here is that he is setting himself in opposition to that which is false. To a false vine. Everything that Christ is, all of the benefits that we would receive from him by faith, all of these are counterfeited by Satan. He is the father of lies, deception, and disguise. It's no wonder Paul would say of him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he's talking about false apostles, deceitful workers who transformed themselves into apostles, trying to pass themselves off as speaking the truth of God. He says, even Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So when Jesus says he is the true vine, again, the implication is that he is combating a false vine or a false vineyard. Jesus had just said in the previous chapter that he was the way, the truth, and the life. This is not unique to what Jesus would say of himself. On different occasion, he would use this word true As he does here, saying, I am the true vine. He also says, I am the true light. I am the true bread. We read that in John 1, verse 6. The reference is made here to John the Baptist. And he says that John came to bear witness to the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. In John chapter 6, Jesus said of himself, My Father gives you the true bread. And then he goes on to say, I am the bread come down. From heaven. And so there is emphasis placed upon this word true by Jesus. I am the true vine. The word really means to be distinct from that which is imperfect, from that which is counterfeit. So we have to ask the question, I suppose, why did Jesus feel the need to press this trueness of himself being the vine of God? And then we, as his people, being the branches. Well, we read this in our Sunday school hour, but I want to read it again or at least make reference to it. It's always interesting how sometimes so closely woven together what we're studying there and what we're studying here are. But if you see Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah speaks here, and the Lord speaking through him, obviously, about a vineyard, the people of God being compared to a vineyard. I'm going to paraphrase some of this, how the Lord says that he has done everything necessary for this vineyard to produce a good crop, good grapes. Nothing more could be done. To ensure that, verse 4 says, What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? All throughout the Old Testament, carrying over into the New, we find this imagery of the Lord comparing his people to a vineyard. 
all of the things that he does in tending to that vineyard to ensure that it produces a good crop, good fruit. And that in abundance, because we're told that throughout these things, in verse 8, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. So that's the first part of this, and we're building towards Jesus' words in the fourth verse where he says, abide in me, remain in me. The first thing that we see is we abide in him because he himself is the true vine in opposition to everything that is false. When you think of the religion of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, all of this, all of the religious elite of Jesus' day, all of that was very well put together externally, but it was all false. It was all in error. It was all under the guise of Satan as being a true form of religion that would produce, in the end, fruit that is glorifying to God. And we see that from that how easily it is to be ensnared by that which is false. How easily that which is false is passed off to be that which is true. But Jesus here contradicts that and says he himself is the true vine. And notice he says, second, my father is the vine dresser. Two points I want to make about this. Then we're going to spend the rest of our time with these two different types of branches he speaks of. Notice that the vine dresser is observing the relationship that the branches have with the vine. The vine dresser is observing this. Nothing goes unnoticed. He truly discerns what type of relationship the branch has to the vine. Not only is he discerning in truth, he is tending to the branches based upon what he sees. Now for the branches, notice that Jesus says that there are two types. We could boil them down into those that produce fruit. And those that do not. We make this passage really difficult when we read verse 2 and we interpret the words in me in the way that Paul uses them in his epistles. That's a warning that I want to bring forth at the very beginning. When you read through Paul's epistles and he's referring to being in Christ or in him. Most always he is referring to the spiritual union of the believer to Christ, which always results in the production of fruit. Now, obviously, there's varying degrees that fruit is produced in the lives of true believers. But Paul is there speaking of the saving union with Christ that a believer has secured by faith in him. I don't believe Jesus is using those words in the same way here. There are some that do. The interpretation greatly hinges on the way that you understand what Jesus says when he says every branch in me. I'm going to come back to this later and show you why I think that's not the right way. If you, in, if you interpret those words by using Paul, you just brought to the table a bunch of stuff that you have to work through. 
But I want to show you that this, as every verse of Scripture, as every word of Scripture, is immersed into a context, a larger context. And Jesus is here referring to the two types of branches, fruit-producing and non-fruit-producing. And notice the, the different, vastly different outcomes of the two. Those that bear fruit are pruned so that they may produce even more. Those that are not bearing fruit, notice the the imagery or the, the language that is used. They are taken away, they are cast out, they are withered, and they are eventually burned in fire. Thrown into the fire where they are burned. These are the two types of branches. So let's look at the first. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He takes away. Now closely connected to the warning that I gave you about how you interpret these two words in me. Let's just say if we were to bring Paul's use of that phrase into this passage. We would say that in reality. What Jesus is saying here is an impossibility. Could there ever be really one who was united to him by faith that is taken away. Cast out. Withered and burned in fire? So in what way is he using these words? And it goes back to another thing that we spoke of earlier this morning. The distinction that is to be made between the church visible and the church invisible. And this is what the larger context bears out. Let me show you. Go back to the 13th chapter. The larger context is... On the heels of Peter's denial, on the heels of Jesus saying of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But most importantly, it comes after Judas betrays him. It comes after Judas leaving the table. Now get the imagery in your mind. This is vital to understand what Jesus is saying in John 15. Judas was sitting at the table with Christ. Had the bread in his hand. That's close. In close connection. His relationship to Jesus had been outwardly and by all appearances very close. And not just to Jesus but to the other disciples. You remember his place amongst that band of disciples, right? He was the treasurer. He was the one who held the money bag. But now he who had been so outwardly close to Christ, by the time we get to chapter 15, Judas is well on his way to eternal destruction. So when we see that larger context, would it not seem natural then that in speaking of branches that do not bear fruit, that are taken away, that are withered, that are burned in fire, Jesus was thinking of men who, like Judas, had once stood in very close connection to himself, had left him, and now were on their way to destruction. I think that's what Christ is saying here, and there is a a great warning Not everyone who finds themselves even weakly in the visible church is in Christ, 
the way that Paul uses the phrase in the book of Romans or Ephesians. Not everyone who professes to be in Christ. Isn't that the message of 1 John? Go and read 1 John. How often does he say, if we say, because the saying is the easy part. If we say, but then don't do, if there's no fruit produced in our lives by the Spirit, then we lie. And we're not of the truth. So when we go back to John 15, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. The distinction needs to be made that this is just another place in the scriptures where we are warned about being very close to Christ, but not being in Christ. It's nothing more than Jesus teaching about the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. Here he does it by just saying fruit bearing and non-fruit bearing. Every branch in me, closely connected, related to me, that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. Who does? The vine dresser, his father. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear even more. And then he says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Have you ever scratched your, your head about that verse? Why is that right here? Again, I think it's tied to Judas. Go back to chapter 13. And the whole issue of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You get down into, I believe it's verse 12. No, verse 9. Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And that's that's a response of Peter saying... Jesus saying to him, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. So Peter says, okay, don't just wash my feet, wash my whole body, but keep reading. In verse 10 he says, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But is completely clean, and you are clean. But not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you were not all clean. And then if you keep reading, immediately following, Judas betrays Christ. Jesus tells him, what you do, do quickly. And he continues instructing and teaching his disciples. So that's why in verse 3, though there's, it's hard to make the connection, but it's a carryover out of the 13th chapter where Jesus is telling his true disciples who are fruit-bearing, who have not fallen away, who have not betrayed him, who were not in him just visibly and outwardly and externally, but those who are united to him by faith and are bearing fruit. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now abide in me. What does that word mean, to abide in Christ? Some of your translations may say remain in me, continue in me. And this brings us down to the great blessings of abiding in Christ. All of the things that are brought to us as believers by remaining in him. And I think it's important to say here. One who is really and truly born again. 
regenerate. That work, Paul says, which was begun in you, that good work, Christ is going to finish. He's going to see it to its full completion. There are great benefits of abiding and staying within Christ. Realizing from these verses that we cannot bear fruit alone. Jesus even goes so far as to say, spiritually speaking, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing can be done in service to Christ or in glory or in hopes to bring glory to God outside of Christ. This is an all-inclusive, pervasive saying of Jesus, without me, you can do nothing. But then in contrast to that, there are great blessings given to those who do abide in him. First of all, there's real fruit produced. Isn't that the way Jesus said that you could distinguish a believer against a non-believer? It's by their fruits that they will be known. The second benefit is that not only will there be real fruit, there will be more fruit. Because the Father himself in wisdom knows how to prune you to get more out of you for his own glory. That's the second benefit. And then based upon that, we could say that there is a direct correlation between the amount of fruit produced in the Christian life and the Christian's closeness to Christ. In an honest examination of your heart and your life, do you ever feel and wish and hope that you were doing more in service to, to your Savior who has saved you? If that's the case, then take that honesty a step further and ask yourself the question, how closely am I communing with Christ? R.C. Sproul, a name you'll definitely recognize. He says, the degree of your fruitfulness as a Christian will be directly proportionate to how close you stay to Christ, how much you feed on his word, and how intimate your relationship is to him. If you want to bear fruit unto the glory of God, you must be in Christ, remain in Christ, abide in Christ, and then stay close to him. Close to him. I don't believe Jesus teaches here in this chapter, in these verses, in any way that a real believer will not bear fruit. That a real believer who is in union with him can live his whole life and never give evidence of his Confession or his profession of faith. And I say that only because there are some who in reading this text say just that. Because they are taking Paul's use of in me, bringing it over and putting it right down in verse 15. Or excuse me, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. These are two distinct type of branches that have two very drastic, definite ends. What kind of fruit should we have in mind when Jesus says the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine? Neither can you unless you abide in me. 
If you haven't read J.C. Ryle much, go and find something written by him. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's going to be good. I can almost guarantee you. But listen to what he says. For those who are wondering what the word fruit means here, you need not wait long for an answer. The fruit Christ has in mind is repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, holiness of life and conduct. These are what the New Testament calls fruit. These are the distinguishing marks of the man who is a living branch of the true vine. Where these are wanting, it is vain to talk of possessing dormant grace and spiritual life. One of the things I really love about J.C. Ryle, he is very plain spoken. He goes on and he says, where there is no fruit, there is no life. He who lacks these things is dead while he lives. If you're not in Christ and remaining in Christ, there is no lasting fruit. And you can also go on to what Paul would write in Galatians chapter 5 where he details the fruit of the Spirit. All of those things that the Spirit indwelling in us produces in our lives that are so contrary and almost diametrically opposed to that which comes so easy to us by nature. Patience, kindness, love, all of those things that he details in the fifth chapter of Galatians in verses 21 and 22. There's another benefit to abiding in Christ that is found here in these verses, and it's in verse 6, in verse 7. Verse 7 particularly, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. What a great promise that is. We talked about this last, I think it was last Wednesday evening. If you abide in me. Notice that Jesus begins this verse or this saying here with a condition. If you abide in me. And then correspondingly, if my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. This is not license, obviously, to ask for things that are not according to the will of God. This is not an excuse to ask what James says in a way that is amiss, to spend it on our own pleasures. How then should we understand this seventh verse? It all begins in the first part of the verse. You can't get into the second part until you understand the first, right? If you remain in me, and the relationship here is one of branch to vine, the vine is sending all of the sap, all of the, the nutrients to the branch, and if that relationship is severed or non-existent, then there's going to be no fruit hanging on the end of the branch, right? If you abide in me and my words in you, then you will ask what you desire. And your desires will be in accord to his desires. He will have worked those things in you. 
where you're no longer asking for things that are in accordance to the flesh. You're no longer asking for those things which are out of character for a believer or out of the will of God. Then those things shall be done for you. And then he ends this by saying, by this my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And here's the connection between what Jesus calls a disciple and the branch that is in him. Sometimes we make things far too difficult. Sometimes we take things that are ripe on the surface and try to bury them under a bunch of what we might call high theology or whatever phrase you want to use. These first eight verses of John 15, taken at face value, are fairly simple. The simplicity comes in this in this way. There is one true vine, it is Christ. There is one vine dresser who is observing the relationship between the branch and the vine. That's the Father. There are two types of branches who are connected in a sense to Christ. One is all external. One is all cloaked in religion. One is all trusting in some type of activity or works, whether it's attendance, whatever it may be. And then there is the other that is connected vitally by faith to Christ and is producing fruit in accordance with that relationship. That's what this Lord's Supper is a declaration of again. It's an affirmation that we are abiding in Christ through faith and that we continue to look to him by faith. So which one of these branches represent you? Is everything only external with you? Or is there vital union through faith evidenced by fruit? That seems to me to be, you boil all of these eight verses down to one thought. It's more than what you say. There must be real evidence, and that evidence is the fruit that the Spirit of God produces in you as you draw from the true vine who is Christ. So where do you stand? Let me remind you about some things concerning the Lord's Supper. It was instituted by Christ on the night in which he was betrayed. The Lord's Supper is for believers only. Those who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. That is for whom the table is here for. There is real 
danger in observing communion if you are an unbeliever. And an unbeliever who is unrepentant before God. Paul speaks of that. He speaks of those who sleep. What he means are those who have died because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. So the Supper is for believers only. And the way we handle that here at this church, we don't have a closed communion. Closed communion means members only. We have what I hear referred to often as I've adopted myself as a close communion. Those who are closely knit together in Christ, who have a good profession of faith, who are seeking to walk in light of that profession, who are bearing fruit to some degree. And we leave it on you parents as to how you deal with this with your children. The Lord's Supper is for believing children too. The Lord's Supper is also for those who have been baptized based upon their profession of faith. We are a Baptist church. We are a Baptist church because of convictions we hold from the scriptures. Baptism being the first or initial ordinance that understood rightly is administered one time to a believer. The Lord's Supper then the perpetual ordinance that we partake of until the Lord returns. The Lord's Supper is also for those who are presently repenting of sin. If you're a believer in Christ and you are harboring resentment and bitterness in your heart towards a brother or sister in Christ, then the scriptures say that you need to rectify that situation before you come to the table. The Lord's Supper is also for those who love Christ's church. This is an ordinance that Christ gave to the church, not to the individual Christian. And then lastly, before our men come, it's for those who are in communion, close fellowship with one another, joyfully serving one another in those ways that the New Testament calls us. And then we might say, sixthly, it's for those who are abiding in Christ. Those who are remaining in him. Those who are continuing in him. Those who are so far unlike Judas, who are only external professors and followers. But those who, like Peter, would say, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. So, Lord, help us as we come to this observance. I'm going to pray as you men come and we'll distribute. Father, we thank you for the blessing of this ordinance that you have given your church that reminds us as often as we observe it of the great price that Christ paid for our redemption, that he did indeed suffer everything that the scripture tells us, every detail. 
He shed his blood. His body was broken. He yielded up his spirit in obedience to his Father. We're thankful for the salvation that is ours in him. That comes to us by faith, through faith. Lord, we pray and ask that every person in the room would know Christ as Savior. That there would be none outside, left outside after hearing the gospel. So, Father, we pray and ask that this time would have your blessing upon it. We pray and ask it in Christ's name.